When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. We're back here for part two of the discussion on the defense against the New York Giants, a, a game that we talked about in part one. And uh, Kevin Ostriker is here to talk about it with us again. Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing good, Ken. Yeah, this is a game that I know the result was not what people wanted. But again, one, one or two things add up. And for this team, it was multiple, many little things. And it kind of all went into one or two things that ended up having to lose the game. Uh, absolutely. Before we move on and talk a little bit about that, uh, I want to thank the good people at Liquid Death, the water that murders your thirst, our sponsor for this episode. Uh, thanks to you. Anyway, uh, we talked about a lot of things in part one. So if you didn't listen to it for any reason, please go back and download that now and, and listen to it. All kinds of stuff about the defensive scheme. You want to feel better about the Baltimore Ravens defense? I'm sure we'll give you some feel goods in the second part, too, because they had a very dominating performance. And I think if you look at what went wrong on the field, there isn't anything to pick on to my way of thinking about the defense. And Or if you do, it's very small things relative to the large things that had been present in some of the other blown leads um, that had occurred in earlier games. Largely, it was some unforced errors uh, that occurred in this game. And and uh, a lot of performances, I think, are, are green up arrows for the rest of the season that uh, that Kevin and I both uh, took a little bit of time to, to go through. And maybe if you need that catharsis, if you need to feel good about the Baltimore Ravens again after that, you know, having to sit through that horrible game on Sunday, uh, take a listen and hopefully it'll it'll make you feel a little better. 
there's a lot that I think goes into a game like this. And I think again, why so many people are so frustrated. And I, I understand it hundred percent is the fact that you could argue this team could be a lot of records right now. They mm-hmm. could be six and zero. they could be one in five. It's very much so like even their wins don't really feel like Ravens wins almost where, you know, some of it is, you know, they're grinded out close games, Justin Tucker at the buzzer, they find ways, but you would like to see a bit more of just, oh, the Ravens dominated like week six against the Chargers last year where they dominated that game from start to finish. I think people want to see that, especially with guys beginning to return from injuries, such as Marcus Peters, who's playing great, and J.K. Dobbins, who did have the knee tighten up. We'll, I guess, figure more out about that as the week goes on. But I think it's it's how they've gotten at three and three that has people so frustrated right now. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, it's it's more about that. I mean, even in terms of the injuries, the the Ravens are have had crap injury luck for so many years. It's easily to map that to this year and say they're just as bad, uh, and and they are bad so far. But they they have gotten some players back, and most notably, they've gotten Ronnie Stanley back already, and he's and he looks to be quite good. Uh, you know, certainly playing at a high level, maybe not quite the player he 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 was, but I'm not even ready to say that at this point. He's made good athletic contributions on the backside of run plays. I see him doing something I, I really appreciated from Ronnie Stanley always, but I hadn't seen it in a while, making two blocks on a fair number of plays. I'm not talking about a plain old combination block where he tees up someone for somebody and then he moves up to level two. Ronnie Stanley does this thing on the backside of a run play occasion where he blocks somebody and realize he's kind of hung up in the wash inside. Then he'll try and take somebody further out south of the pocket as a run is going either up the middle or the other way to the right side, just fantastic athletic player. You rarely see that out of a left tackle and you certainly don't see it about anybody else. The Ravens have had in that position uh, the last couple of years. So been very impressed with that. And, uh, and uh, he he's brought a ton back to the Ravens, but they have, they have suffered tremendously an injury. Uh, Fortunately, unlike some other teams, number eight is still out there. Yeah. And I know there have been plenty of, quarterback carousels not necessarily season ending quarterback carousels but like these mini multi-week injuries that are having guys shelved for two weeks or four weeks but Jackson has been in there and and I agree with Ronnie Stanley he's looked great I know the mobility was a big question if the mobility would be back but He's looked really, really, really good. And he he was that key to unlock the Ravens offensive line and the offensive line as a whole. I know there were question marks, but I've been impressed with them overall as well. Yeah, I uh, certainly played very well in his first game back last week. Uh, this week, probably a little bit of a step back despite the 211 yards rushing. I know I'll take some heat for that one. Uh, but offensive line scoring will be out tomorrow on the podcast if you want to take a listen for that. Right now, I want to talk about the pass rush. So let's move on. And... Uh, you know, a variety of things to talk about here, but the blitzes were up this week. Uh, 12 out of 31 plays, uh, they rushed five plus, which is higher than they have been doing. They've been really trying to keep young quarterbacks in particular in the pocket, let them make their own unforced errors. They went a little bit of a different tack this route, and it really worked out. They they got a lot of pressure on Jones in this game. I mentioned in the first show, 18 of 31 dropbacks, and that's 58%. Uh, that resulted in a pass or sack. They had some sort of pressure event. That is very high, folks, very high. And uh, the Ravens had been 30% or something the previous week. They were 25% in another week. Uh, so uh, to, to have a 58% game like this is is really special. And they did it without getting a lot of contributions from outside linebacker. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the way that the pass rush works is it works in tandem with the secondary, but the Ravens were winning fast to get to Daniel. It wasn't like we had a ton of coverage sacks. I know there, there were some areas where the secondary clamped down on the receivers and the pass rush was able to get there because of that, but we saw guys winning fast and getting into the offensive backfield with relative ease, and it was really impressive to see because the Ravens have been – a Decent pressure team this year, but this was, I think, some of their best work of the year where they were able to make Daniel Jones uncomfortable. And it works because you have to speed up your internal clock. If you're a quarterback, you're looking out for that. If, if the Ravens, they got early pressure and Daniel Jones had to think about that for the rest of the game. And it's all like the the mental aspect, the mental gymnastics that the pass rush can bring. But yeah, the interior, it, it's the interior that I was impressed with. I know Rafa Owe didn't really show up in this one Jason Pierre Paul did, didn't really show up in this one but we saw other contributions which I was very impressed with and that's what they need when some of the other guys aren't doing what they need to be doing can other guys step up and make the impact for them and we saw that in this game yeah I uh I would agree with that they, they need broad-based pressure right now and they and and they had enough scheme involved in this one that they they really uh moved it out along we'll talk about that a little bit breaking down uh, the amount of time to throw. Jones had ample time and space on nine of 31 dropbacks, so a little under 30%, which is probably right around normal. Maybe 10 would have been would have been right around normal. They only gained 60 yards on those plays, 6.7 yards per play. That did include the sack minus one for Matabike. So he had ample time and space, started to run the ball. Matabike got completely turned around on the play 360 degrees and then he got back into it and he and he made the tackle short of the line of scrimmage so it ended up being a sack as opposed to a, a a run for positive yardage uh when you don't get lit up on your ats opportunities generally you're going to win that football game uh and, and they did not get lit up for only 6.7 yards per play they didn't have a lot of them and they didn't get didn't get beat really badly when they had them and once again ats opportunities a three-second pocket that either was or would have been in my judgment, of course, if the uh, if the uh, play had continued, if the ball had continued to be hold for three seconds, yeah, there, there's a lot that goes into that too. Where you know, when you give a quarterback time to throw, how can your secondary work off of that? Because if you don't have a good secondary and your pass rush isn't getting there necessarily early, then covered sacks don't become a thing even though your secondary is playing well. So you have to have your pass rush do well, your secondary do well. That combined results in turnovers. We didn't see that in this game, obviously only the one that Patrick Queen had at the end of the half, but Mm -hmm. it it all really does go hand in hand. Yeah, very much so. A player like Marcus Peters in particular completely gambles off what the pass rush is doing. So, you know, you give him an extra tool to work with, extra extra tool in his box. Um, If you uh, are bringing pressure a certain way, he can think about how he wants to adjust the line of scrimmage, how he wants to beat the quarterback, you know, whether he wants to undercut the the route and take a chance on it being beat deep because he knows that the pressure will get there if there's a blitz coming, say. So lots of things that uh, a player like that can do to help you working directly with your pass rush in terms of, uh, of understanding what's going on. Uh, ball out quick, four times for 12 yards. No problem there. 10, two, two incompletes. Uh, those are uh, balls thrown before pressure could develop, but I, in my judgment, it would have developed before three seconds, uh, were done. It's a very low number of ball out quicks, by the way. Tua, for example, had 24 ball out quicks in the game. Uh, other, other quarterbacks who pressure was a bigger threat, got rid of the ball more quickly than Jones did. Uh, just didn't end up being the way it worked out here. And then 18 pressure events, 
a whole bunch of good things, but 4.2 yards per per pass still on those plays, despite three sacks. Uh, they had a couple 15-yard under pressure uh, throws there that, that was a lot of the yardage again. They also had a 17-yard play. Uh, anything to say about that before we talk about some of the players who, who provided pressure? Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of quick pressure or quick out throws, there was one, I think it was early in the first quarter, where the Ravens sent, I believe it was Gino Stone off the edge, and mm-hmm. Jones just kind of threw a quick screen, and the ball was tipped. Yeah, and tipped. The, the receiver, like one hand grab. So that that was a situation where again the ball bounces one way or the other, or goes one way or the other, and that's a third down stop on a day where Baltimore did give up seven to fourteen third downs. Could, first of all, completely agree on that play. It was a great play by Stone, but the fact that that ball was tipped and still caught—that's a pressure. I mean, that's that's a uh, Stone gets credit for a pressure on that play, absolutely, and it's the second one on the list here. But uh, they had a, a, a multiple contributions, and Stone was one of the guys. He had a, a a PD, and he also had another pressure zone on the on the last pressured throw they had of the game, which was a seven yard throw. Uh, got one pressure from Oway, got zero from JPP on the game. Uh, Campbell had a huge sack, uh, also had another quarterback hit, both drive ending plays. Uh, he had another one where he's kind of containing for pressure on the uh, on the queen sack at the end of the half. Technically, that's a drive ending play, too. But uh, anyway, Campbell, a big day of of uh, doing good things, as he almost always seems to uh, for this Ravens team. Travis Jones, a sack early on, a quarterback hit just a few plays later. Uh, terrific day for him getting started because he also had run contributions as well, of course. Uh, the other guy who had three pressures in this game is Chuck Clark. So they blitzed him uh, several times. And actually, I'm looking at it. I'm only seeing two pressures right now. I was swearing if they had three, but still it's good. Malik Harrison with two pressures. Patrick Queen with three pressures plus a sack. So a heck of a day for Patrick Queen. Um, and... Anybody else? James Urban had a pressure. That's most of them right there. I think Peppy Williams actually also had a pressure the way I scored. He did on one of the incomplete passes. So uh, variety of guys getting the pressure. It wasn't any one player. It wasn't just the outside linebackers. In fact, it almost wasn't at all the outside linebackers in this game, which is uh, great that you can get that much pressure without getting anything from them. Yeah, and the way that the Ravens were getting it too, I mean, we saw Clayus Campbell win quickly on some plays uh, Travis Jones on his sack I mean he he bullied the uh, was it was it Feliciano I think Feliciano, it was, yes. was it Feliciano he mm-hmm. bullied him all the way back and it was just a pure domination rep which again we saw during the preseason so these interior pass rushers have been great I think so far this year Feliciano was claiming illegal use of hands on the play and he might not be wrong it actually looked to me like Jones had him kind of punched in the neck instead of the head, but but Feliciano was definitely trying to act like it was illegal use of hands and was trying to get the flag. He just he, he, he did not get it done uh, in terms of uh, of having one there. The Ravens had they had some calls go against them in this game, but most of the calls I thought were legitimate against the Ravens, and they had a couple that they really got away with, including the Andrews touchdown with the late um, – you know, you know what game that reminds me of, of course, the, the 2008 Tennessee playoff game uh, where they had they, where they had the uh, – uh, Three uh, Deardorff said it. We thought it was three seconds too late, and then he looked at it again. He said, "Okay, well, it was one second too late." I think that's about what this might have been. Is it? You know, might have been a full second late in terms of uh, of uh, of uh, getting this getting that snap off on the play. Yeah, a lot of the uh, a lot of the penalty. Like you look at the false. Like a lot of it. Like you go back to offense. 
you know, like all the four false stars, the illegal formation. I know the Peters penalty is the one that we've talked about the most. I feel like the the one yeah. in the end zone, which had very big implications. But again, as, as we talked about, you, you don't put yourself in that situation to where you get give the Giants the ball on the 13-yard line if you're the offense, and then you have a very limited field to work with. So penalties were definitely a killer in this game. But, man, offensively, it, it, it was tough to watch in certain situations. Yeah. Uh, in terms of by number of pass rushers, people often want to know about this. Uh, it, they rushed two on one play. That was one of the ones at the end of the first half that went incomplete, uh, one play, zero yards. This is the big one. When they rushed four, 17 plays, 92 yards, 5.4. Obviously, you take that any Sunday. Uh, three sacks in 17 plays. So one more better than a sack every six. So 16% sacks or, or thereabouts, even higher than that, probably 17, 18% sacks. Uh, but, uh, it's one of these things where, um, if you can get pressure with four, you, you, you're generally going to win very, you know, a high percentage of the time you're going to give your, your, uh, secondary, all kinds of opportunities to work off that pressure and, and make plays when there's seven of them back there. Uh, in this game, they used a little bit of sort of spy keeping Patrick Queen back a little bit or keeping somebody back in the middle of the field who, who obviously had some responsibility for Jones. Um, but uh, but they didn't do too much of that. Most of the time they were rushing and and trying to get someone extra in the backfield to uh, to force Jones to make a decision more quickly. Yeah, and I think in some situations during this game, Jones did a good job of either stepping up in the pocket when there was pressure or moving around a little bit. We saw a couple of those plays by him where a couple of third downs he converted because of that, the touchdown where he kind of rolled out on the plate of Ellinger was mm-hmm. another one where he used the space to his advantage. Yeah. But I think with the Ravens, they were still, even when he had time to throw, the Ravens still at the end of plays were getting there. Obviously, you want to have the pressure come a bit more quickly than that. But I think Jones, I, I give him credit for stepping up in the pocket and kind of using the space to his advantage on some of these plays, which I think were key conversions for him. Yeah, I, I mean, I do too. But you know, fortunately, he didn't really escape the pocket for big yardage right. ever. And and when he when he was forced to throw, uh, he he was a couple of times forced to throw and take a hit. Never a really big hit. Did take a, a hit from Campbell. Did take a hit from Travis Jones. Those probably were the biggest hits he took on the day. Uh, he was in a in a position where he's going to take a hit from Clark, and he threw it away. And then Clark let up on him. Uh, that was a good play by Clark to not try to take it to the ground there. By the way. Uh, but uh, you know you, he he did he did a fairly good job of not taking big hits during this game, even though he got he got sacked four times and and took a couple other quarterback hits. <laughs> I'll go to other rush situations here. So with five, when they rushed five, they did that eleven times, five point seven yards per play, one sack, one turnover. So obviously five man rush when Queen got his sack fumble. As a very extended play, they had to wait for that to develop. Obviously, you know those those. It does take three seconds to develop, which is almost always why at the end of the half on a hail mary, or at the end of the game on a hail mary, certainly you see a quarterback that drops back the full distance, then comes up to the line, both for purposes of getting there, but also to burn those three seconds off. That it, it'll take his receivers to make it sixty five percent of the way, or sixty percent of the way, I'll say, uh, towards the goal line, so that when he heaves it up in a high arcing artillery shell they can actually all be there by the time the ball comes down because it's uh it takes time for those routes to develop and all the defenders are rating right there at the goal line or at least four of them typically are on on those plays 
Yeah, it's what we saw last week with uh, with Aaron Rodgers when he was trying to hail Mary at the end of the game, where you have to let the guys get there. So he's moving, and he's he's the king of those. Where he's mm-hmm. we've seen multiple game winning plays from him, but where the Giants were able to get there because they obviously pursued and they were able to force the fumble to end the game, where it was Queen this time for the Ravens at the end of the half with Daniel Jones. It was the the forced fumble that I think it was Chuck Clark who recovered it. So it's those mm-hmm. situations where. Quarterbacks moving all around. You got to wait for the receivers to get there, or else you know you're not going to get any points out of it if you throw it to them with the twenty and they can't get in the end zone. All right, you've heard us talk about liquid death for a few weeks now, but have you started paying attention when you go to your convenience store? Did you notice those strange tall boys of beer, but they're in the bottled water section, or they're in a store that doesn't sell alcohol, but it looks like they've got beer? It's because it's not beer. It's mountain spring water from the Alps, and it's called liquid death. Why is it called liquid death? Well, because it brutally murders your thirst. It's infinitely recyclable. Tallboy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. Plus, they donate 10% of the profits to every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. And I don't know. For some reason, it seems like the water's always colder in a can rather than a bottle. Plus, you can have some fun with it. I had fun this weekend where I took a couple tall boys of liquid death to coach a little league. You put those right into the uh, dugout with a bunch of eight-year-olds, and you'll get some attention. You got some parents looking. Definitely get some attention. But no, I have to show everyone it's just liquid death. I'm just drinking water in a dugout with a bunch of little league kids. So go get liquid death for yourself. Test it. Try it out. You're going to fall in love with it like I do. So go get liquid death at your local Harris Teeter or 7-Eleven or find a liquid death retailer near you with the store locator tool at liquiddeath.com forward slash film study. That's liquiddeath.com slash film study. All right. They hadn't been rushing six very often, but they did it twice for zero yards. So we have those. Talk a little bit about about deception in this game. They did have eight blitzes, make that nine blitzes spread out over eight plays. Uh, They're fairly effective on those. I didn't actually calculate a yards per play, but they did have a the sack fumble was on a blitz, obviously, or not obviously, but it was on a on a double blitz by uh, Clark and uh, Queen. And then they ran some stunts, and this was nice because they got uh, uh, Campbell actually stunted for his S minus eleven that, that ended a drive towards the end of the game. Uh, that was a that was a worthwhile series of plays for the Ravens. They only gave up six total yards on those six uh, simulated pressure. They used a little bit of that where two plus guys dropped from the line of scrimmage. Uh, fairly successful with that as well. Um, looking at it here, twelve twenty five thirty six over seven. So no, 36 over eight, four and a half yards per play on simulated pressure. Uh, and then they had deceptive rushers in general. They gave up 23 yards, had a sack fumble on six plays. So that's fine as well. Uh, generally speaking, the deception they used work. The numbers they used were fine. The four-man rush was fine. The run defense was fine. Again, and Kevin and I have been over this. We talked about a lot of the first episode you really have to pick nits to find out what didn't go right for this defense other than the self-inflicted mistakes. Yeah. It, it's so many like little, little things that add up to one or two big ones. And I know we talked about that too, but the defense, I think again, I'll, I'll go back to the term settling in. They have done that. There were plenty of questions coming out of that week two Miami game after they blew that lead about, can this team stop giving up big plays? Can they not blow a fourth quarter lead again? Which I know the fourth quarter lead thing has happened a couple other times, but they've done a really good job. I think of keeping things in front of them, which I think was a key heading out of that game where 
It wasn't like the Dolphins were putting together 10-minute drives in that fourth quarter. It was quick 60-yard touchdown, 40-yard touchdown, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the defense, these kind of slow burn drives where they're able to either hold in the red zone, hopefully, they'll be able to do that more over the course of the year. But it's almost like the bend-don't-break defense that we've talked about for multiple years where they will give up the short stuff and then tighten up in the red zone and allow kicks instead of touchdowns. That's the recipe for success for them. And I think it starts with not giving up the over-the-top plays. Marcus Williams helps with that. I think Geno Stone is kind of your next man up there, obviously, and he's played well so far. So it's a matter of guys stepping up and being able to go up to that task of not giving up those big plays, which can really change the course of a game. Well, they did a good job of not giving up anything deep, obviously, in this game. But I, even as the as the Giants drove down the field, my feeling was that they were dri- driving pretty slowly, and they were. It took them six minutes and change. Burned up more than half of the clock. I think they got the ball at twelve fifty four, scored with six oh one or thereabouts. I might be up by a few seconds, but anyway, it was it was a six minute and fifty drive roughly, and and it was time that y- you think if the Ravens had stopped them on there or even held them to three their chance to win that game is so much higher. It's just so much higher if they uh, if they could have done it. And obviously the Giants were in a must-score four-down situation, but they weren't in four downs to, to score at the end. They were in three downs to kick a field goal, and that would have been a really nice thing to, to, to uh, hold them to if it, had, uh, if it had come to that. It's unfortunate because situationally it's just – this is a game where, you know, with the balance of strategies, you know – benefiting the trailing team again that they were just in a better situation to gamble and win than the Ravens were uh, down the stretch. And that's unfortunate, but it's the way it worked out. So. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I know a lot of conversation was surrounding week two, at least where the Ravens defense kind of spoiled the tremendous Lamar Jackson performance and a loss. I think this time around, it was the offense spoiling a great defensive performance overall. It's kind of flip-flopping between week two and week six in those two losses. Yeah, completely valid point there. I would agree. I would agree thoroughly. It's, this is uh, this is all this loss all on the offense, frankly. Well, let's move this. We do, I'd love to do individual player discussion uh, at this point. Guest chooses first. We'll each pick some players. We'll talk about what they did in this game, what we liked, what we didn't. Uh, talk about whoever you like. Obviously, there's some some players on both sides here that you could pick, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I've talked about Justin Matabike a lot, so I want to change it up a little bit. So I will go first with Clayus Campbell. In the box score, it wasn't necessarily a standout game for him, but did rack up a sack. And I thought I was impressed with his film. He did win a couple plays really, really quickly and in getting into the backfield. The, the sack that he had, we, we talked about it. It was a huge play near the Ravens goal line where ultimately it forces them into a tough situation. But I think that... He's a player that is has not slowed down. Like he is still a very impactful player. And I know there is a lot of conversation, and I am very much a proponent of being able to manage his snaps because last year he played by far the most snaps on that defensive line. He's played multiple games this year where he's played a ton. So being able to kind of not load manage, because I think he's too talented to not put on the field in certain situations, but it is a a load management situation where you want to have him for November, December, but against the giants, I thought he played relatively well. Well, it's one of the interesting things here. Matt Abike outsnapped him in this game, which is not, not usual. Um, It's 45, 43 in the game book. I have it as 43 to 40. That doesn't include the kneels, the penalties kind of thing. So uh, that's, they are in some way looking at that and deciding that, that the, uh, 
this is an appropriate thing to do with him. Uh, I I assume that he can still play 40 snaps comfortably. It, to, to me, that that still seems maybe a little high. Uh, but if the Ravens really are serious about a snap count, what they've got to do is deactivate Boyle and activate a sixth defensive lineman because that's the easiest medicine. In a game where they have to play a ton of defensive linemen like this, um, yeah, th- this is one of the bones I had to pick is that, you know, and, and it'll be the Browns next week. You don't ever want to get in a situation where you only have four defensive linemen active against the Browns. Worse that you have might have three and the, the Ravens have been in that situation before, but they don't want to be in a situation where they even are down to four and the rotation becomes thicker and heavier and more of a workload. You've already got Travis Jones. You need a load on for a lot of snaps. The backup to him is not really true nose tackle size. So you don't have the, you know, Braddock Washington, if he has to come in for him, uh, you know, he's not I- ideally suited for that position. So I think it it would it would do the Ravens well to activate a six defensive lineman for this game coming up against the Browns. Yeah. And especially with the way that the Browns offense is the, the Browns are a team right now also that are just going through it on the football field and couple of games where you know the Ravens have had their fourth quarter struggles. The Browns have immensely struggled in the fourth quarter also. Yep. And the way that Nick Chubb is playing, I mean, you have two of the arguably the two best running backs in the NFL right now, back to back weeks, where the key point for Baltimore in week six was can you stop Saquon Barkley? Can you make the Giants beat you somewhere else? The key in week seven is can the Ravens stop Nick Chubb? And they have another talented back there in Kareem Hunt, obviously, who adds a different dimension. But can you make Jacoby Brissett in that passing offense beat you? And I think this game, after again, after what happened in Cincinnati in week five, this was a very encouraging performance because the way that they played against Joe Mixon and that Bengals offensive line that had struggled going into that week was not encouraging. But then turning around and playing the Giants the way they did with their interior and their front seven guys stopping the run the way they did, that to me gives me confidence for week seven. I need to look at how much 11 11- – that the Browns have played because to, to me, that's going to be the key factor for them with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback. My guess is they probably played less and tried to be heavier to try and lean on that run game that they have and the offensive line they have, which is really strength of the team. If they let the Ravens play base defense the way the giants did, they're just asking for trouble. The, 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 the Browns are, I don't, I don't, you know, there's very few teams that can really stand up to what they do. The, the, the Browns would probably be one who can still have their way with the Ravens defensive line despite their size. But I think the other thing that we didn't talk about is just what an advantage that is for the edge set edge setters to be spread out wider. That if, if you can go five wide instead of four wide, as you are in the standard nickel, that makes the job a lot easier for your edge setters in terms of who they have to go up against uh, to block. They, you know, one side is going to have to just beat a tight end man on man to hold that edge and and that's usually a, a you know a good chance for a big physical player and Owe and Pierre Paul both you know have the stones for that kind of thing. Uh, the Ravens even when they have not had great edge setters and you were depending on players like Jihad Ward uh, to go in there and or you know and replace a player like Ferguson who later became a decent edge setter and this I'm going back to 2019 now in that San Francisco game. Uh, it was it was going with a, a, a jumbo nickel look and one where they would they would be able to spread the line of scrimmage to five and sacrifice an inside linebacker to do it, which I, I see them doing against the Browns in this coming game. Uh, they're going to depend very heavily on one inside linebacker, whether that's, uh, you know, Harrison or Bynes, probably Bynes, frankly, for some of this. And, and then also, uh, you know, depend very heavily on uh, Clark's run fits. Uh, to allow them when the when the Browns do put 11 on the field for them to still play nickel 
but also still play a broad enough front that they have the advantage against the Cleveland line and are able to stop Nick Chubb. Right. You have to have the versatility of having guys that can be physical with a runner like Nick Chubb for how violent and physical he is. We've seen him gash multiple fronts, many for the Ravens front back in that 2019 season. That was the, the game that changed it all. I think a lot of people will say that Kansas yeah. city, Cleveland back to back where they gave up 500 yards total in each of those two games, which is just unheard of. So for Baltimore, yeah, being able to stop him and, putting in those packages on the field that give you enough of an option to get into the nickel, but also be physical enough at the line and have Chuck Clark and other guys out there is going to be super advantageous for them, especially with the way that Cleveland's offense has struggled this year to generate much outside of Chubb. All right. Uh, let's see. Who's to, I guess it's might be my turn to pick now. Uh, yeah, we talked about it a little bit, but I still want to talk about the great game Travis Jones had and, uh, Boy, is he a breath of fresh air right now in terms of what he brings to the Ravens defense. He clearly is a physically imposing player. And, you know, you can see he's he's being asked to probably play a little bit more of a two-gap two role since he's a kind of an exclusive one now with uh, – uh, sorry, with uh, Pierce out of the lineup. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Ravens still have opportunities where they can try and penetrate with him, and they have enough guys who know how to play two gaps that you can assign one of the others to do that on a, any given down. So, uh, you know, they have Urban and they have Campbell, who are both, Urban in particular, outstanding run defender. So you could, you could put him next to, uh, uh, next to Travis Jones and still let him work his magic on some plays. And, uh, you know, they have, they have Broderick Washington out there who's, who's I think, playing pretty well right now, certainly doing the job at a minimum. And of course, they have Calais Campbell, who you can plug in just about anywhere in terms of, of uh, doing what you want from him. But Travis Jones' step forward is the kind of uh, young playmaker they know in the interior. And frankly, it's the kind of young defensive lineman this team has desperately needed for a few years. And, and maybe they've got two now because maybe Matt Abike and, and he are, are, are both in this category but that can allow them to get cheaper on that defensive line where they are spending a ton of cap room. Yeah. And I was, I was just going to bring up the point that yeah. they really needed it. They they've needed it for the past couple of years. The, the way that Brandon Williams, I guess his decline in 2021, the, the ability for him to not be a three down player, Travis Jones can be a three down player for you. If you need him to, if you need him to, I think is the key situation, but yeah. They can do so much with their defensive line. And they have the thing that I talked about going into the year was that they have the combination of both veteran talent and young talent. But Jones is one of these players that I think with the injury to Pierce, and I know we've gotten into this, he's going to be able to play a massive role for them moving forward. And I think he'll be one of the most important defenders, honestly, because getting interior pressure is so massive for a defense. And the Ravens, with the struggles they've had recently doing it in recent seasons, it is a breath of fresh air. I, I agree with that saying because people have been looking for it for so long where it almost feels a little, it, it feels different to have a guy that can do that on multiple different plays and multiple different looks and just straight up overpower guys physically. Like we saw in the Feliciano sack and it's stuff like where the trace McSorley play in the preseason where he just levels trace McSorley. It's those types of plays that get you so excited about a duo of him and Justin might be potentially for the future. And, and if, if the Ravens could be playing the Browns this week, and this is the woulda, coulda, shoulda, it's, it really just sucks, is losing Pierce, who um, is not personally versatile. He's a pure one-tech, 
whereas Jones is a versatile one three tech. But in order for him to get those three tech snaps and really do you good in in base defense, where he's a three tech to start a game against a team like the Browns, who you know is otherwise has the potential to push you around a lot on the interior of the line. In order to get those staffs of three tech, there has to be another one tech. And the Ravens don't have anybody who, who fits that bill currently. They could go to the street maybe and get somebody if they really wanted to. I mean, with two games against the Browns in you know the rest of the season, I'd have to really look at what other teams there are on their schedule still uh, that, that would maybe really like to run the ball to win. Uh, the Colts come to mind as a team, you know, you might want to have, uh, you know, a one and a three, four, but any team that can help you, honestly, any team that you can, you can put Travis Jones out there as a three, you're probably going to gain an advantage. Uh, and I know they have Matt Pique and he's played terrific and they have Campbell. So they have more linemen than they need. But on the other hand, you can never have enough because it's a rotation position and you really need them all. And, uh, and that's really why I I'm, I'm a big proponent of activating Mac for this week and deactivating Boyle. Uh, if you're ever going to do it, I think against the Cleveland Browns is the time you do it. It makes a ton of sense. It, it makes, honestly, the most sense in the world to do it now, especially with what the Browns are known to do. And I know for the last couple of seasons, it's been like the Browns and the Ravens is some of the top rushing offenses in this league. And to have the versatility of these guys to move them around the front and to do so many different things, to not just be – good run defenders, but to generate that interior pressure to help out your back end, to help out your secondary. And again, we've talked about the rotations and how much of an uh, an aspect that is of everything and how much of an advantage it is for the Ravens where you can save guys for the fourth quarter. Talked about Clay's Campbell snap count as well, saving him for November, December, January, hopefully February when, when we're talking. I think that it's so important for a player like Mac in this situation to be activated. Who knows if they do it or not? You know, we'll, we'll find out on game day. But I think that if there ever was a week to do it, I agree it would be this one. All right, your turn. Who's your next player? You know, I have to I have to give him some love. I'm, I'm going to talk about Marcus Peters. I know he had the penalty in the end zone, but the way that he's played since coming back from the injury has been, I don't know what you want to call it, inspiring, electric, whatever the, whatever the word is you want to use. He has been, I think, one of, if not the savior of this defense, his insertion back into the lineup, I think has given them new life. There have been a lot of other circumstances that have contributed to that, that we've gotten into, but he, when he's on the field, so much happens, so much good happens. The ability for him to use his intelligent football IQ to bait quarterbacks into throws his game awareness. He's also an impressive part of this. We go back to the giants game and even the Bengals game, he's showing physicality this year. We, we saw the play with Joe May or Tyler Boyd. It was against the Bengals where he mm-hmm. just, he levels Tyler Boyd. And then in in this, this week's game against the giants, he, there's a completion and Marcus Peters just absolutely obliterates the guy. <laughs> like he just puts him flat on his back. So I love the physicality Marcus Peters is playing with. He is such an important piece of this defense. And I think it go, I think some, like a lot of people understand it, but I still think it goes a little underrated in terms of how much they missed him last year and how much of an impact it had on their turnover numbers because of what he brings to the defense. Him being back is such, it's a blessing for them. And I think he continued his strong play outside of the penalty, obviously in week six. Yeah. Obviously when they, when they missed him, uh, he's, he's very, it's a, it's a huge miss when you, when you don't have him. He's been all kinds of uh, uh, turnover happy since he's been back. He had three late in the New England game, right? I think it was a New England game. We had a forced fumble, the fumble recovery right by the sideline, and an interception all in – might have been all in the same quarter, but it was all in a very short period of time in that second half. Uh, just a 
a, a terrific run of things. And Marcus Peters knows where the football is. I, I, I think he's selectively physical is how I would describe him. Um, there, there was a play in this game where he chose to be out of it. Uh, not even to choose to be second second man to the ball, but that's what I want from Marcus Peters. Cannot afford an injury at cornerback right now. Not to either of those two guys. They represent so much of the defensive value on this team, and and you know what they're able to bring. And you can't find a slot corner to save your life. Okay, it's a bad problem, but it's it's not nearly as bad as not having an outside corner, which is where the Ravens would be if they lost one of those two. They would have they would be playing somebody who's very outclassed on the outside, whether that would be JAD or Stevens, whichever one it's, you know, it's, it's not going to be who you want out there. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's just very fortunate. And I think back to those 2000 teams where um, Starks and McAllister were some of the most selectively physical players you'll ever see. McAllister had a, had a reputation because he was big of being a real good run defender. And he, and he made some plays downhill. I'm not saying generally speaking, they were under orders from, from Marvin Lewis. Don't, get in the pile on one of these 11 billiard balls tackles. We don't want you getting hurt in there. And, you know, that's what Syracuse and Adams and Ray and Sharper and all those guys are for. You're not, you know, making run stops for us and uh, on those plays. And I really appreciated that they did a a much better job of keeping their corners healthy in those days. Yeah. I go back to the, uh, uh, the 2020 divisional game against the Titans where Second play of the game, I think it was. Marcus Peters like obliterates Derrick Henry in the backfield. And mm-hmm. honestly, he chased him down on another play. He was the MVP of that defense in that game, which unfortunately they lost. But I agree. We we see the plays from him where he will, I think, <laughs> selectively remove himself from the from the play, which is is fine. You know, there were questions coming in when he was traded about he can't tackle. He, he but I think he can tackle. He just chooses when he doesn't when he doesn't. Okay. We said on, on the Boyd play, it looked like the Patrick Squeen school of tackling in terms of not wrapping up. He just, he just knocked him down. I mean, it, was a, it was a weird play, but, uh, but definitely a fun one to see. All right, let's see. Uh, your turn. You want another, talk about another player? Oh, I, get, I get another one. I think it was your turn. You get, uh, certainly, I will do it if you don't want to. I, maybe we need to talk about the three-headed monster at uh, slot corner that they haven't figured out yet. So uh, we'll talk about the three together in terms of Pepe Williams, Stevens, and Washington. None of them perfect. Obviously, Washington, a practice squad call-up for this game. They get one more elevation with him before they'll have to activate him to the to 53. So I don't think they'll even necessarily take it in the next week because they, they don't want to be kind of forced into a position where they, they, they have to elevate him instead of returning him. They'd rather keep the option uh, for it having value. Stevens, uh, you know, there are times when he flashes. And then there you have the penalties, and then you have the the dumb other stuff like the being the twelfth man on the on the field defensively in this uh, particular game. So, I, I'm I, I, his, his coverage has been at times you see a real highlight play from him that that he you know he, he's watching the hands of the receiver in particular, not finding the football, makes a play on the ball. I just haven't been tremendously impressed with what he's brought to the outside corner position and obviously had had some problems in terms of coverage at safety last year. Yeah, I think that the if they had to pick one guy, and if I had to pick one guy, I'm the most confident it would be Pepe Williams. He's playing with fire, I think, which is really nice to see. Almost has a little bit of Marcus Peters fire to him, which I really like. And he's made some plays. I know he was picked on against the Giants a little bit, didn't have his best day. But I agree, Brandon Stevens has shown potential, but he's also had these 
errors where you're thinking, oh, come on, like, come, do we have to do that? Is this what we're, we have to do here? So I think Williams has been more consistent, but I think it does give them valuable options, especially with Washington on the practice squad. It gives them enough options to where if one guy were to go down with an injury, they can just use and rely on the other two or the other one, whichever way they want to go. But I think Williams has earned it. I think Williams has earned a significant share of the snap so far. And I, I think that it should continue to be that way. I, I think he's been the most consistent out of them. And I've been overall impressed based off of, I think, my expectations for him going into the air versus where they are now. I, I think he's raised my expectations significantly. Yeah, I'm I I am more on the fence than I was probably before this game. Uh they just they've each had their problems is the is the issue with me. I mean, I, I was more impressed with where Williams was in terms of being able to reach across the body as he trailed a receiver. Um, you know, say a little bit almost it seemed like makeup speed, or maybe I'm seeing a, that the quarterback doesn't feel like he had to need need to had to that he needed to lead his receiver by as much, but it looked like he, he did a, a better job of finding the football in the air, reaching across the body of the, of the receiver to make a play. Um, since the preseason, you know, you know, obviously the last game or two in particular, I haven't been that impressed in terms of what Williams has brought to the table. I thought he won the job in New England. I thought they really had the guy. Um, but then the, 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 the next two weeks I've, I've been less impressed uh, hasn't been getting as many snaps. Uh, obviously, when you when you have multiple slot corner guys all getting rotated through, or in the case of the New England game, going with going with uh, JAD and then having that not work out and nine for nine plays, and then going with Stevens for basically a half after that, and then he he is yanked and benched at the beginning of the second half, and then you go to Demarion Williams. It doesn't give you a ton of confidence that you know that any guy is necessarily the right guy. One more thing I want to say about slot corner in general is that it is a it is the easiest position to fill on your defensive backfield. That there are more guys who can play slot corner who are that body type because you don't have to have this aircraft carrier size the Ravens seem to demand out of their outside corners. Um you really you 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 can there are many more guys who can play that. And I've often said and this is it was a problem of the Ravens Years ago, you know, after after the McAllister years and before the Humphrey years, I'll say, where they had a bunch of shorter guys and they were trying to fit him outside. And they had Jimmy Smith in that era too, and he was fine. He was he's the right size, length, everything. But but they had other guys that they were just trying to hope it worked out and like trying to solve your uh, outside corner problems by picking up additional slot corners is like trying to solve your starting rotation by picking up additional relievers. You can sometimes go the other way, and we've seen Humphrey be able to play in the slot, but the fact of the matter is that size and shape pool is a lot larger, and you can go to the street and even November still get a guy who might be okay in that slot corner position. And it's it's just it's very frustrating that none none of these three guys have really stepped up and taken the job by the throat and said, it's mine. Yeah, and I know the Ravens do have roster spots, so if they feel like they have to get more consistent there – they could definitely find someone. I agree. There are still, there are veteran options that could really work for them. I know some are on practice squads right now. Maybe they sign a, I believe Chris Harris Jr. is on the Saints practice squad or so. So they, they have veteran options that they could use, but yeah, it's been, it's been inconsistent up and down for them. I know with, with Tavon Young, it was injuries and he just couldn't stay on the field with mm-hmm. these guys. They're trying to figure it out, which guy should be on the field and which guy shouldn't. 
So, you know, you're kind of dealing with inconsistency either way, but I think, I think I've seen more flashes out of Pippen Williams this year. Not saying there haven't been any from Stevens. I've definitely seen them, but I think I've seen more flashes from Williams this year to say I would give him more of the snaps, but still definitely make it like a almost 50, 50 rotation, depending on circumstances. Yeah. I, you know, Eric DaCosta has, has made the comment that you need to keep drafting corners because they're like pitchers. They get hurt. And you, you know, they, they may have lost effectiveness too, for that matter, but they definitely get hurt at a minimum. And I mean, it's, it's become the new defensive line for the Ravens. They've got a lot of depth. I'm just not sure there's a lot of quality depth there. They, they kind of looks like they wasted a third round pick on Stevens, frankly, at this point, it's two years, you know, okay. That's not fair. He's a year and year and five games in. You're in six games in, and so far they haven't found him a position. It's not safety, uh, and I don't think it should be safety. Even though the Ravens are a little bit thinner right now, they could they could potentially move him back there. I, I want them to to pick one position for him and have that be it. And I think outside corner is probably the best chance. Um, but you know, it's a it's a it's another problem position. They drafted two guys this year. You know, Pepe Williams, obviously the tough ask for him to be already you know showing that he definitely deserves the starting slot corner job by the sixth game of his rookie year I mean but we thought he had it in camp which is where I was starting from so that's probably why I'm more frustrated by that Jalen Armour Davis you know is a guy they really hoped could could go out and replace Marcus Peters to start next year if they had to move on from him which they might have to for cap purposes uh I don't think after a healthy scratch in week six uh, they are as sanguine about that proposition as they might have been beforehand. So I'm, I'm, uh, you know, all of the things that could have gone right for the Ravens at corner this year, it doesn't. It's it's been a fairly disastrous year to date for their young cornerback group. And I know, oh, I've seen I've seen plenty of conversation about Tariq Woolen versus Jalen Armour Davis over the past mm-hmm. couple of days. And I know right now Woolen is balling out in Seattle. Has played phenomenal football for them. But in terms of slot, yeah, it's it's difficult because I think for where the Ravens are, can they afford to have as many growing pains as they're having at that position right now? I don't know if they can afford that because one big play here, one big play there for a team that clearly is competing and clearly has high aspirations. If this was a team that was rebuilding and they understood what was going on, they knew that it, it wasn't their year, you'd be a lot more – like you'd have a lot more – leeway to say all right you can go out there play make some mistakes it's all right but for a team that clearly is not in that situation right now you want the consistency of having someone at that position especially with the way the nfl has moved into having three receiver sets four receiver sets etc etc you need to have a guy out there that's consistent so i'm not saying that williams or stevens can't be that guy for them at the end of the season but you have to work through the growing pains with them. And I think that's a sac- almost a sacrifice that they have to make in terms of getting a talented young player, but not really knowing, is this the guy? Is this not the guy? Where's the rotation? How many snaps is this guy playing? How many snaps is that guy playing? It's a, it's a fluid situation. And right now I think it's, it's better than it. It's better. It's happening now than in December, but if it's happening in December, then I think it becomes a pretty big issue. Right. Well, if, 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 <laughs> I, I don't know the likelihood that the Ravens will fall out of contention before December, but it is possible. Okay. It's not, it's not a 0% chance that it'll happen. In which case I think we'll see some of those guys on the field. First of all, the reason they fall out of contention may be an injury on the outside, which would just be disastrous, but we probably see Jalen Armour Davis then on the outside. Maybe we see Stevens full time on the outside and we, and, and they get their trial by fire under, under those circumstances. But 
Uh, the Ravens have been pretty good in the past about getting guys a, a modicum of snaps that increases year by year in their early years so they can get a pretty good picture of who these guys are. Obviously, Stevens got a fair amount of snaps last year, but if you look back to Anthony Averett, he got 65 snaps as a rookie, and I think he might have gotten 200 in his second year. That's the kind of progression I'm looking for for a player like J.A.D. Um, you know, a player like Pepe, where they have no one in the slot, hey, he gets a shot to play a lot in year one in theory, uh, uh, and, and that would be uh, t- terrific if he could just yank that job so that Stevens is not even a, a consideration in the uh, in, in the discussion there. But just so far... You know, they have three guys and and no one has said it's mine uh, right now, at least not said it in, the, in in on the field in terms of their play. Right. And you, you knew what you were getting in Tavon Young on the field. And I think it's so unfortunate that injuries went the way that they and he's, he was he hasn't played a game for Chicago. He's been on injury reserve the whole season. So it's a continued trend for him. But you knew the consistency that you had when he was playing and he he played well for them, I think, in 2021, all things considered. Compared, I mean, compared to what they have seen from the position this year. And so having that consistency, I think, is something they miss there. You mentioned they can play Humphrey in the slot, but you'd rather have him on the outside with more consistent option inside. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we've seen already how valuable Humphrey's physicality is on the outside and some of the plays he made. I go back to that fourth and three play that he made by basically holding a receiver up within five yards. Most part was within five yards then releasing him, coming up and making the play on on somebody else's uh, target, so or assignment rather, uh, that that's what you know. The, the physicality of Marlon Humphrey is going to be always much more valuable on the outside. Even though you know we have we have Gordon McGinnis on the show, and he says he, he might be the best slot corner in the game. I don't know if I completely agree with that, but I, he, he's definitely a good slot corner. He's a great outside corner. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. All right. So. Let's see. I've I've got a Stone and Hamilton. Do you want to talk about them in, in kind of a similar light? Uh, they're getting Hamilton on the field, obviously. Uh, more plays. I didn't really notice a big breakdown from him in this game. I didn't have a single note for him that was like this was terrible. Yeah, I, I, I think it was a, it was an okay game for him. You know, not didn't necessarily make a huge impact on the field when he was out there, but didn't have mistakes. And I think that's what you want to see out of a guy like that, where he's made impact plays. And I think he did make a a few impacts in this game, but it wasn't like we saw a glaring mistake. Like obviously the Miami game, that's the biggest one we saw from him. Here's my question for you. You have Geno Stone and you have Hamilton. Hamilton is your number one draft pick 14 overall, but it's a sunk cost. Okay. So you're you're not getting that back no matter what you do, no matter how you play Hamilton, how you use Hamilton, how good or, or, or not good he ever ends up being. You're not giving, you're not ever getting that back. Geno Stone is a third-year player. Now, admittedly, you would prefer your first-year player who is going to be around to be the guy you could really depend on. But Geno Stone is playing awfully well. Does, should Geno Stone be losing snaps to Hamilton on the back end? Should that be a rotation? Or should Hamilton be doing what he was with um, when they had Marcus Williams active and just coming in on third down, playing dime back, uh, or playing somewhere on the field when there are three safeties on the field. I think I lean more towards the, well, I, I go in the middle of both. I say that there should be a rotation, but I think Geno Stone should be getting the most snaps in the rotation where I think Hamilton does deserve to play and does deserve to be on the field because of the, obviously the high draft pick that he is. You're not going to bench the 14th overall pick for, you know, all, all the snaps in a game. But I do think with the way Geno Stone is playing again, this is a team that is competing. This is a team that has high aspirations. 
if Geno Stone is playing better than Kyle Hamilton, you want the better player on the field. Not to say that the development of Kyle Hamilton isn't important because obviously it is extremely important. I think he has the potential to be an all pro player to, at the highest ceiling that he has. But at the end of the day, with Stone being the player that he is right now, and I think with the team having so much confidence, he's, he's, he's a guy I think the Ravens love on the field. They love off the field. He's been a really important part of what they do. And the depth that they have can still allow Hamilton to be on the field in those certain situations that you talked about. But I think that if you have an option between a player that's playing better than the other with the way that the Ravens are, you want to give the more snaps that, and if Hamilton outplays, you know, stone, then I, then I flip it and I say, Hey, look, give, give the guy who's playing better, more snaps. So I think that is where I am kind of in the middle of, Geno Stone over Kyle Hamilton, but still giving Kyle Hamilton some snaps because I think it is important to get him on the field. That's the wishy-washiest of answers possible. Thank you, <laughs> Kevin Ostrecker. For- <laughs> I'm, I'm here yeah. several days a week doing this right, right, yeah. if you need more. <laughs> there you go. That's that is 49 to 29 in snaps this year, this uh this week by the game book. So basically, you know, Stone getting more snaps, being the better player, uh, is certainly a positive thing. But uh this is a um uh, you know, a, a situation that is that is probably going to be evolving for the Ravens. Uh, what I will say this, and I want to get your opinion on this, Kevin, is, you know, Chuck Clark, a lot of people had him written off. A lot of people had him traded. To me, I don't think there's any chance in hell right now we've seen anything that would have you get rid of Chuck, Chuck Clark this offseason. I think he stays for this. But wh- where do you sit on that? Where do you, Chuck Clark to 2023. Any chance that, you, that the Ravens want to get rid of Chuck Clark for 2023? It's, I think it's up to Chuck Clark. Honestly, I think it's up to him. We we saw... <laughs> my, you know my, my response to that? I'm sorry to cut you off here. It is definitely not up to Chuck Clark. <laughs> he is under contract with the Baltimore Ravens. So if he, if he complains, says they don't want to play, and he ruins his own trade value with that... I, I, you know, I think the Ravens will, will probably still want, I mean, uh, oh, you said 2020. Oh, I thought you meant 2024. Okay. Yes. No, 2023. No. Okay. Yeah. I was saying when he was a free agent, it's up, it's up to what he wants. No, I think, yes, it's not up to Chuck Clark in 2023. (laughs) It's okay. Yeah. uh, It's, it's interesting because I think he does provide so much value to them where I think that they want to keep him around. And the way that he is, I call him like the glue guy of that defense because obviously, and I know the the players have made, I think a big point this year of like the green dot, like isn't really that important. Like, you know, people talk about the green dot all the time and yeah. (laughs) And it's like, why are you talking about the green dot all the time? But Clark has been a guy who he's communicated, he's communicative. And I think that it values a lot of different aspects in terms of just him being able to put young guys in position, say, Hey, you need to be here. You need to be there giving out the play calls plus his versatility of being able to play up at the line and do so many different things. It, it is an asset for the Ravens to have Chuck Clark on their team. He, is he the best safety in the world? No, but I think he provides a need for them. He plays a role for them. And I think it is to have a safety rotation when everybody's healthy of, of Chuck Clark, Kyle Hamilton, and Marcus Williams, guys that have, I think, different value of different skill sets that they can bring to the table while also being able to do something similar to each other. The, that three safety rotation, I think is so important to them. So if I'm the Ravens, I'm, I'm keeping Chuck Clark, unless again, everything just goes haywire and he's like, I don't want to play. And then you evaluate that. But again, in that situation is not, it's not up to him when he's not under contract anymore. I think he probably leaves. Right. I think there, there will be, I think I think there probably will be uh, he will likely go at that point um, after twenty three, 
Extending him, it would not absolutely shock me, though. And I, so much of it develops on, uh, you know, depends on how Hamilton develops the rest of this year for, for starters. Um, but frankly, with Hamilton, you know, one of the things you're going to try and do is give him the signal calling responsibilities. No inside linebacker can have it on the Ravens because they don't want him in there for every play. They don't want, I, I don't really think you want Patrick Queen uh, calling the signals, even if you did have him in there for every play. It's just my feeling about it in terms of what's going on in the Ravens. I think also you want your your green dot guy to be a good example to the other players. So that means Marcus Williams could do it, uh, but then he's your free safety, and they don't generally want that from a back-end free safety, lots of range. Getting back to communicate that play call is more difficult, so they will not typically do it unless there are extraordinary needs. They did with Eric Weddle briefly with this team, and they did with Eric Turner in the first year in Ravens history. Otherwise, they haven't had a free safety hold that spot. But otherwise, they, I think that they – they uh, they really want the strong safety to be the guy. Geno Stone could be the guy, uh, but then you're committing to use Geno Stone for every snap in 2020. You know, three if Clark you know throws a hissy fit and gets himself thrown out of town before the last year of his contract, uh, or or uh, in 24 if you end up with the same safety group, which they'll obviously they have new players that'll come in in the draft in that period of time. So it's hardly worth even discussing the the the. the 24 situation right now when they're you're in game six of 22 and uh you know working through things but but in any case i'm i i i i'm really glad that they didn't do something rash with chuck clark it's it's ended up they've they've have a very strong safety group still it's it's the backbone of this defense in terms of what they're able to do and and, and what they're able to run and i'm glad they um they kept him to be the uh the communicator for the team as well i think it really has paid off yeah, and, and what we're seeing now is with Williams being down, if they had traded away Chuck Clark, it would have been full Geno Stone, Kyle Hamilton right now, which I don't think is terrible. But you still want to have the, the steady veteran of Chuck Clark in there who has seen a lot. He has played a lot. And he's familiar with the defense. He, he's familiar. He's been in this role for a while now. He, I think, has improved. And he's someone that I think is such, such a smart football player, too. And the physicality he brings is compared to some of these other safeties who play down in the box. He's a very physical guy. So the skill set that he brings, I think is important to them. And I was, I was on team keep Chuck Clark the whole way this off season. I'm mm-hmm. very glad as well. They did not move him away because once Williams is able to come back now, it's very fortunate. It wasn't a season ender for him. They're going to be able to get him back being able to now rotate in with Williams and Hamilton and Clark and even stone. You can even throw stone on that conversation. If he continues to play well, it is a big, big asset, especially if the Ravens go through some stuff corner-wise, which, again, who knows what that's going to be like at the end of the year based off of positional history. Well, the, the, that is the big deal about the green dot is there is no rotating that player. So right. Clark, if he's the green dot, which I've predicted all along, ever since the, the 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 signing of Marcus Williams, the draft of Hamilton, I said, uh-uh, Clark is going to be still the green dot player all this time. I don't, I, I really don't see any reason to change that. And I don't think they take a chance like that, frankly, on a rookie. And, and especially with Hamilton being more of a chess piece type Derwin James player, it didn't really make sense in the way to have him be also the communicator and has really not made sense in terms of what we've seen on field about his understanding of this defense. It just has not been at a high enough level to be the guy you want calling the signals. And whether, you know, 
I want to talk in a second about what the good game Patrick Queen had because I want to heap some praise on a guy that I've I've definitely been been tossing some crap on for the for for a lot of the season. But um, your your green dot guy has got to be an example, a stellar example of knowing where to be in terms of position for the rest of the defense to respect him. And you know it's it, they're just there's not a lot of choices there, and and neither Hamilton nor Queen has been in the right place enough to be the guy as yet who who gets the green dot yeah i i trust chuck clark with the green dot I, he is the player that i am most comfortable having and i'm not saying other players can't do it but if i had to pick one player on that defense to have it it's chuck clark because he's been in the position before he understands a lot of the nuances of this game and we we see him you know you see him pre-snap doing a really effective job getting guys in position and making sure they're in the right position to make plays and i think that there are so many things that go into the Ravens, I guess, ascension on defense over these past three weeks. I think Chuck Clark's been a big part of that. All right. Uh, we're going to have to call it there, I think. I did want to talk about uh, I'll talk, I really want to say some nice things about Patrick Queen because he had a great game, probably his best career game to this point, uh, in my opinion, against the Giants. Uh, he had one maybe missed tackle, but it wasn't a bad missed tackle. It was it was a play where he was in the backfield. Uh, missed tackle at minus one, as I saw it. But uh, other services might not have a missed tackle there, and I would respect that judgment as well. Uh, but anyway, uh, was in the right place, obviously at the right time again for a turnover this week. Uh, had good pass rush in general, where he had four separate pass rush contributions that were a big part of getting that 58% um, uh, pressure rate there. Uh, just did a, a lot of things well. And also as a, as, as a tackler, he led the team in tackles, and that's one thing. But, you know, obviously if you're Patrick Queen, you make a lot of tackles that are pretty far downfield. Well, this game he had, he had contributions. I think it was four of his plays that he had tackle contributions on were defensive wins. And that's the really big stat to me. The people call it different things. They might call it stuffs or stops or this or that, depending on what you're talking about. Defensive wins by the football outsider's definition relates the yardage to go and by down to where the tackle is made. And it's it's really a valuable statistic if you want to look at defenders. It's what I always look at for linebackers who tend to pile up some tackles and they can be all over the field. They can make some big tackles downfield and coverage that aren't nearly as valuable as tackles they make closer to the line of scrimmage that keep you winning on down and distance. He, he was flying around out there and, and we saw that sideline to sideline ability, the speed that the Ravens coveted when they picked him at number 28 overall in the 2020 draft. And yeah, he's been up and down. I, even this year he's been, he's been up and down, but I think we're starting to see the confidence. He's, I think he's played a lot more confident this year in general overall. And I think we're starting to see that on the field. And yeah, in a game where he did have multiple plays where he flashed to me. I mean, the, the one, the turnover play obviously is, Again, it's a count but doesn't count play because it's right at the end of the half. Mm -hmm. But he he pursued Daniel Jones on that play and did a really good job of, again, just getting the football out and making sure the Giants did not have an opportunity on some dumb luck Hail Mary play to score a touchdown. So he's a player that he has so much potential. We've talked about it for so long about what he can do when he's hitting on all cylinders. And the way that he's played over these past couple of weeks, I think, has been very encouraging. I know PFF agrees, depending on who puts stock in PFF and who doesn't. But I think that there's a lot to like about his performance in week six and is continuing to build upon that in week seven and beyond that I am hopeful he's going to be able to do. All right. We're going to have to call it there. Uh, Kevin, always appreciate having you on the show. Great discussion about football. It's two hours past just like nothing. 
but uh, we'll uh, hopefully uh, have a chance to talk football. I think we are on one more time this season, right? Am I right about that? I believe so. Yeah, okay. I think so. Pro- probably to talk offense then that second time because that's the way I usually set it up. But really appreciate you taking the time. Tell folks where they can talk football with you. Yeah, absolutely. I am always on Twitter at ChaosStriker34. You can find me there. Also, I do host and produce Locked on Ravens. It's a daily Ravens podcast, so five days a week, Monday through Friday. We are in audio form, any podcast platform you can think of. We're in video form as well on YouTube. Also, I write for Ravens Wire, so seven days a week there as well. So tons of Ravens for me. It's it's a lot, but it's a team that I know is a little frustrating right now, but I think has enough talent to hopefully turn it around. All right. Outstanding. Thanks for coming on, Kevin. Other people out there, if you would like to be on a film study short, hit me up. I'm always looking for good content to do that one extra show per week. Uh, that usually comes out on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and or or even a Monday, depending on the on the what we're talking about, but I'm looking for that, that nice narrow topic, 25 minutes or less. We can talk about it. Uh, and, and we can get your passion expressed in an episode. DM me on Twitter. They're always open. I'll get right back to you about, about doing a show. If you have other visual aids that go with it, we'll put it out on a YouTube video. Uh, we've had some good ones recently. I hope you'll go out there and, and, and check out Kevin. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much. Ken. I appreciate it as always. And we'll talk to you next time on film study. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.